Welcome to ILTV's Israel Daily. I'm Aaron Porras, and coming up in today's newscast, a Pandora's box of secret documents leaked to the public and hundreds of Israelis impacted in the so-called Pandora Papers. Meanwhile, an assassination attempt in Cyprus gone awry, but who called for the hit? And finally, Israel and Lebanon now set to come back to the negotiating table, the United States appointing a new mediator in their Mediterranean maritime border dispute. We begin tonight, like most of the globe, with the so-called Pandora Papers, a massive collection of nearly 12 million secret and leaked documents revealing the inner workings of a shadow economy that benefits the wealthy at the rest of the world's expense. The documents were collected and diligently reviewed over the last few years by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, or the ICIJ, in cooperation with some 600 journalists from 150 different news outlets in over 100 different countries. And at least 565 Israelis, including 10 Israeli billionaires, have been named in the report. But in fact, no nation was immune to the alleged corruption schemes, which involve at least 35 current and former world leaders. More than 330 politicians, public officials and celebrities from over 90 nations, convicted criminals and murderers, and thousands more such individuals, all of whom have been linked to a network of shady cash dealings to allegedly hide their assets. Joining me to unpack this massive story, legal counsel to the Halel Likud Forum and Im Tirtzu, attorney Ziv Ma'ol. And opposite, Mark Schulman, columnist for Newsweek and editor of HistoryCentral.com. Thank you both so much for, for joining us. Now, first off, basically everyone named are, are rejecting the allegation, any allegations of impropriety. Uh, and I want to point to the ICIJ disclaimer in that there are legitimate uses for offshore companies and trusts. Uh, the ICIJ says that we do not intend to suggest or imply per se that any people, companies, or other entities included in the leak uh, have broken the law or otherwise acted improperly, uh, and that many people and entities also have the same or similar names. So it's suggested to confirm the identities uh, of these individuals or entities that are located in the database. That said, what do we know about the Israelis who have been named? Uh, Mark, I'll start with you. Well, the two that stand out the most, of course, are Nir Bakat, former mayor of Jerusalem and now a Knesset member, and Chaim Ramon, uh, former uh, minister and Labor Party stalwart, and now, I guess, in business. Um, those are the two that stand out the most. There are others, others as well. Mm. Uh, the issue with Bakat has to do with, number one, the fact that supposedly his um, his shares in the company was supposed to be in a blind trust, and it turns out that they're in the trust of his brother, which may have been okay while he was the uh, mayor of Jerusalem, but violates, I believe, um, the Knesset rules in terms of blind trust. It has to be in a literally blind trust. With Ramon, it's just a very strange deal, and no one quite understands with with um, with what he had with the Austri Austrian businessman. Uh, Shraf, and no one quite understands what went on in that. Well, he's uh, a, well as, I, as I understand uh, it, he's alleged he's alleged uh, to have been a straw man in a dubious real estate deal with a, with a tourism company. Right. So, it's, it's yeah. not, no, no one can understand the deal. Let's put it that way. That's why it's just maybe a straw man, something else going on. Mm -hmm. What was his involvement in this? Because he basically bought a company that was worth much less than, you know, had many more debts than it actually, than assets. So it's a very strange sort of deal. Um, and there are other smaller cases. I mean, the big question here is, you know, the public's right to know more than anything else. And um, I think actually what may impact us more than anything else is actually what we 
what we found out about uh, our neighbor, King Hussein. Sure. Um, and again, um, you know, there is a question of someone who is awfully wealthy, let's put it that way. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's quite clear why the uh, royal family in England is very wealthy. It's a little less clear why the royal family in Jordan should be so wealthy. All right. Well, uh, well, so. well I want to I want to come back to, to Jordan and Lebanon and a couple of our of our neighbors. Uh, but for now, let's stick on Israel. Ziv, I want to bring you into the competition. Uh, what, what was your what was your biggest reaction to, to all of this? Uh, and another uh, member that we haven't yet spoken about is uh, uh, Steinmetz, the Israeli diamond magnate uh, who and billionaire who who's alleged to have uh, you know certain dealings in Guinea uh, and and bribery, all sorts of things. So if you ask for my most prominent reaction, I yawn. I don't think the story has any uh, leverage into it. Mm -hmm. uh, as the disclaimer of the people who uh, uncovered the story have stated, there are many legitimate and legal uses for this kind of actions. And when you look at countries such as Israel and others, that put enormous pressure, enormous regulatory pressure, and enormous uh, uh, standards that one must uh, obey to in order to manage his funds. I see it completely legitimate and completely fair for someone who has a substantial amount of money to put it someplace where, first of all, it would be hidden from the eye of, of, of the public, and secondly, it would be easier to manage those funds in terms of uh, uh, taking them away from government officials that uh, not always have the best interest of the public, I wouldn't say in mind, but in practice, in the way that they conduct their manners. So it is completely legitimate to have, uh, 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 to have uh, funds, specifically uh, uh, significant amounts of them, uh, in uh, offshore accounts. As for the specific names, uh, well, uh, my, my predecessor just uh, said it quite clear. I, I see nothing wrong in what Nir Bagat have done. Now, don't get me wrong, he's a subpar politician. He's a service to the uh, people of Israel as a member of the Knesset are below average. But in terms of corruption, I don't see anything wrong that he did. Uh, uh, what I specifically mean is that everybody knows Okay, uh, the, the other gentleman just made a, a comparison between the British royal family and the Jordanian royal family. Unlike uh, regular politicians that you do not expect them to have a significant amount of money, everybody knows that Nir Barkat came into politics after making uh, a backload of money. But, but, uh, but, but, but again, but, uh, but again, Ziv, with all due respect, though, it's, you know, you're talking about the legal reasons and, and the legitimate reasons for why he would maybe want his brother instead of a blind trust to... to be in charge of, of this money, but it objectively is in violation of Knesset eth ethics codes. Yes, yes, but the, the, the validity of those codes is questioned because the, this is not a law. But okay, is it, there but are it, laws, there are, legis okay. there, there are legislations that went through the Knesset that uh, define what a member of the Knesset is allowed to do and not to do. For instance, he would have not been allowed to be a CEO of the company that he owns according to the law. The decisions of the ethics committee uh, are not legally binding, and uh, well, the committee might sanction it. But once again, the sanctions of the of the uh, of the ethics committee are not binding as well. Unlike, for example, the impeachment process that exists in the United States. So this is not a significant element, uh, given that. Once again, everybody knows that this is a wealthy person to begin with, and there is no the, 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 the smallest suspect that this person gained his wealth out of illegitimate sure. uh, uh, well, but, abuse but, but, of but, his public authority. Well, so also, uh, you know, I, I, I agree yeah. with the second. I agree with the second part of what you said, but the first part is a little problematic. We expect our elected officials, whoever they are, 
to follow the ethical ethics rules. That's what they're there for. Now, you can say it's not a law, but the Knesset is a sovereign body that makes its own rules, and it created rules, and we expect people to follow it. I'm not saying it's the word, you know, it's not uh, first-degree murder or anything. But and it's not an embezzlement. This is the most important thing. There is not the smallest evidence that Nir Barkat took public money to his own use. Well, there is nothing to it. Sure. And, and, and for, for well, the so, so in Nir, in Nir, so in Nir Barkat's case, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't seem like there's evidence to, to suggest that he gained his wealth through illicit means or, or, or anything like this. But again, these, these Pandora papers also discuss how wealth, how massive amounts of wealth was hidden. Uh, and, and that kind of also goes to, to uh, allegations about his company, eToro. But I want to move on. Uh, how soon, if at all, do you think any of this will lead to an investigation? I do not In think Israel, it's not at all. In it, not, not at all? Mark, not at all. I, we, we have enough other things on our plates in Israel to investigate. I think this is a really a minor matter vis-a-vis -vis Israel. It's a little bit of a public relations problem for Nir Bakat. Uh, Chaim Ramon will also have to explain what, what was all this about. Maybe there'll be an investigation there, but it's less clear. Um, maybe some of the other names there the tax authorities will look at. And by the way, the general comment about offshore accounts, so the government doesn't look at it, that's not really a fair way of looking at it. We have tax laws in this country, and if people are using offshore accounts to avoid taxation, that's a problem. I'm not saying anyone is, but I'm saying offshore accounts are often used to avoid taxation. And in Israel, we believe the law is that if you live here more than half the year, that all of your income, wherever it derives from the world, is taxable here in Israel, which is not unsimilar to America. So the fact of the matter is that people are using that to avoid taxes, that's a bad thing. As for investigation, Aaron, I must add that uh, it, uh, it totally depends on who is the politician at hand. That, uh, some of the accusations against Netanyahu in, uh, in uh, case 3000, the submarines case, yeah. uh, regard a very small amount of shares that he had in a company that sold steel to the company that manufactured those, uh, those uh, submarines. Uh, this is a very small allegation. Very small. These are very small allegations, and yet uh, it did uh, start or trigger an investigation that came up with nothing against Netanyahu, but it did start up an, an investigation. Now, against Barkat and against Chaim Ramon, there are also, if anything, stuff that are really small. If one of them were either Netanyahu or one of his supreme supporters, I would believe that we would hear at least commentators and journalists start to say that an, an, an investigation is needed, because this affair is just as blur as the one with the submarines. The oh, please, let's not start there. The submarine affair deals with the security of Israel on so many different levels. There's been no answer about why the Egyptians were approved to give a submarine. Let's not get into that right now, but we can't compare the two. Right. When we're talking about the national security of Israel and the purchases by the Navy, whether it was correct or incorrect, and whether it was corruption, and people have been indicted in the affair, not Netanyahu, but others have. And this is really a small little... Uh, you know, it's it's really very little, I think. So, so, here. so, so Mark, I think it's, it's much like, more broad, frankly. So, Mark, like you said, regarding our neighbors, maybe maybe this has some further-reaching implications. King Abdullah II of Jordan, as you mentioned, uh, and many other politicians, including the new Prime Minister of Lebanon, have also been implicated in siphoning huge amounts of money uh, while simultaneously condemning corruption, even during times of unrest, like during the Arab Spring. How might this report? affect their leadership and, by extension, their nations? Is, is regional stability at risk? I think a little bit in Jordan was already at risk, and I think we have to be concerned about that. Look, there's really legitimate questions. Where did he make all this money? I mean, Jordan is a poor country, generally speaking, and we know kings like to live well and everything else like that, but where did, 
Where did the um, monarchy of Jordan make as much money as it made that he has all that money to invest? It's a legitimate question the Jordanian people are going to have to ask, or they, they will ask. In Lebanon, we're talking about a country that is falling apart. Now, it's not, I think Lebanon had the largest number of people on the list who had moved their money offshore that was discovered in these accounts. Now, of course, as someone who I spoke to today in the United States said, well, if I was in Lebanon, I'd want to move my money offshore as well, which is quite clear. If you had money and you made money in Lebanon, you're certainly not going to want to leave it in Lebanon. On the other hand, once again, we come to politicians. You know, it's one thing if you're an individual businessman, you do what you want with your money, hopefully you're not violating tax laws. But if you're a leader of a country, that becomes a very problematic issue. And I think, again, that'll further complicate the situation in Lebanon, which already is one big mess. Zeev Maor, Mark Shulman, thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure. And now for a story straight out of Hollywood, Israeli billionaire Teddy Sagi escaping an assassination attempt on the island of Cyprus. The 48-year-old Sagi, who lives in Cyprus, fleeing the country immediately after being warned by Cypriot police, and the suspect has since been arrested. According to reports, after several days of tracking the suspect's movements, Cypriot police detained a 38-year-old Azeri national for allegedly being hired to carry out the hit. This as the suspect crossed from the Turkish-controlled northern Cyprus into the independent south on a Russian passport. Further, police seizing a gun, ammunition, and a silencer from a car that the suspect had rented. The officers also now looking for any accomplices, but if there are any, it's believed that they're either hiding in the Turkish-controlled north or fled the country altogether. The only question remaining then is who sent the alleged assassin and why? And there are several theories, though they tend to contradict one another. Sagi, the founder of gambling company, uh, software company Playtech, believes that this was an Iranian terror plot. Cyprus, on the other hand, discounting Iranian involvement completely. Then Israel, at first, likewise pointing fingers away from Iran and instead towards potential financial or business-related disputes. Though shortly following the initial reactions, Israel officials now changing their tune. The prime minister's spokesperson saying that Iran is behind the assassination attempt and that it should be considered a terror plot, but that the attempt was actually on Israeli business people in Cyprus in general and not necessarily against Sagi at all. So was Iran involved with a recent assassination attempt in Cyprus? And either way, what else has the Islamic regime been doing as nuclear talks in Vienna continue to stall? Here with the analysis, former senior advisor for global public affairs at the United States State Department and former deputy assistant secretary of state for digital strategy, Len Khodorkovsky. Uh, Len, thanks so much for being with us. Now, let's start in Cyprus. Cypriot officials say that Iran had nothing to do with it. Israel flip-flopping on whether Iran is involved and, and whether Teddy Sagi was even a target. Stand with us now, the latest to implicate Iran. What do you say and, and what evidence do you, do you have to support that? Uh, well, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, in terms of the evidence, I certainly don't have any evidence at this point, but uh, I did note that the prime minister's office has pointed to Iran. Um, as uh, uh, that the, the, the Iranian regime has tried to execute a terrorist attack on Israeli businessmen. Uh, that would not shock me in the very least. Iran has uh, uh, planned and executed attacks all over the world for the last 42 years. It has assassinated world leaders. Two of its assassins were imprisoned last year in Europe uh, for trying to kill a um, uh, for, for trying to actually uh, blow up a, uh, an event from Iranian dissidents. Uh, there was also a story earlier this year where uh, the, the Iranian regime tried to kidnap and extradite a, an Iranian citizen, uh, an American yeah. citizen to Iran. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
that, you know, if it smells like the regime, if it looks like the regime, in my mind, it's the regime, and that would be my default position. But but isn't it possible, I mean, and, and why why shouldn't we necessarily defer to, to the judgment of the Cypriot police and Cypriot officials? Isn't it just as possible or plausible that financial or corporate disputes were the catalyst, as earlier suggested? Certainly, everything's plausible, and we'll, we'll have to let the investigation take its course. Uh, but uh, this is the M.O. of the Iranian regime. This is how they operate. Uh, they are like a mafia state that tries to intimidate and bully people and dissidents. And uh, this is its way of sending a message. It has very limited uh, number of tools in its toolbox to try and, um, you know, send messages to Israel and the United States. And this is one of them. So I, I certainly let's let the investigation play itself out. But mm -hmm. Uh, I would put the onus on the regime to disprove it rather than uh, give it the benefit of the doubt that it's innocent. All right. Now, let's move on to nuclear talks. Iran is now asking for yet another precondition to resume negotiations with the West. They want the United States to unfreeze some $10 billion in assets as a show of goodwill. Germany, for one, rejecting the demand. Uh, is Iran at all serious about, about these nuclear talks, or are they just maybe trying to get as much as possible before letting them fail? Well, I, th I think it's both. I think, number one, uh, it is uh, desperate for money. It has been desperate for cash uh, since the beginning of the Biden administration and going back to the maximum pressure campaign of the Trump administration, which uh, essentially starved the regime of about $200 billion, and that's according to the former president, uh, Rouhani. So, yes, uh, the regime wants cash. Uh, it's trying to escalate its nuclear program in order to get access to any money it can, because that is the only way it can survive. Mm. Uh, it has no legitimacy among its people. And, it, you know, it, it, any legitimacy that it has in the world stage is, uh, is what we allow it to have. And so um, I think the Biden administration has been fairly meek on this issue and has uh, allowed Iran to be rewarded for escalating its nuclear uh, you know, nuclear ambitions. So do you and think so the Biden administration might regime, actually... Why would the regime, um, you know, take, you know, uh, soften its position? So do, so course, do you think the Biden administration might actually cave on this? Do you think that Biden might actually free up that, that 10, uh, you know, that $10 billion? I, I would not be shocked uh, because I think the Biden administration is more desperate for a deal than the Iranian regime. Uh, I think that it, the Biden administration, especially in view of the Afghanistan debacle is looking for a diplomatic win. I think uh, it sees the um, a new Iran deal as perhaps that diplomatic win. Of course, they see it as a win. I don't think uh, anyone else does. But uh, I do. I do see a possibility, uh, whether it's literally unfreezing the funds or whether it's allowing the funds to come to the regime from uh, increased sales to. Uh, China and and other uh, players like Venezuela and Syria, uh, it it I, I could see it happening. It is it's definitely plausible. Len Korakovsky, thank you so much for being with us again today. Thanks so much. Moving on, Israel and Lebanon finally getting back on track towards negotiating a pseudo maritime border. The two states still technically at war, fighting over the rights to explore a natural gas field in the Mediterranean. And now the United States, which is brokering the talks, has appointed U.S. State Department Energy Envoy Amos Hochstein as mediator. The Israeli-born Hochstein will be taking over for the Trump admins negotiator John Disroker, and he'll be arriving in both Israel and Lebanon by the end of the month to begin his post.
So who is Amos Hochstein and how will talks progress under his management? Join me to discuss. Research fellow at the Moshe Dayan Center of Tel Aviv University, Nir Boms. Nir, thank you so much for joining us. Now, Hochstein was actually mediator for the Israeli-Lebanon border dispute during the Obama administration. Uh, but what else can you tell us about him? And, and are you pleased with his appointment? Well, Amos Hochstein uh, is somebody who's very familiar uh, with the issues at hand. Uh, he is Israeli-born. Uh, he spent a lot of time here uh, officially and even unofficially. Uh, he uh, has been an administration uh, uh, official uh, for two decades now uh, and spent a lot of time uh, in, in the Middle East uh, really dealing with uh, energy uh, issues for the most part, uh, which is certainly very relevant uh, to the issue at hand. Uh, the uh, Israel-Lebanon uh, uh, agreement has a lot to do with the gas fields uh, that in the Mediterranean Sea. Well, uh, so how exactly does he differ from his predecessor, John DeSroker? Well, uh, the two uh, are, are uh, obviously experienced as well, and they're different people. Uh, but I do think that uh, when it comes to this particular dispute, uh, the, the previous uh, negotiator actually was able to lead a process that uh, came uh, fairly close uh, to... Uh, uh, to a point uh, of, uh, of agreement, which in the last minute, uh, due to a push by the pro-Hezbollah camp, but the government of Lebanon uh, had changed the Lebanese positions completely uh, and even increased the gap uh, between uh, the two uh, parties. Uh, the task remains to try and, and mediate. And I would also say that uh, Lebanon needs this mediation much more than Israel. So, so where are there still disagreements in the dispute, uh, as specifically as possible? And, and do you think that Hochstein will be successful in addressing them? Well, the disputes, if you take the uh, Israel-Lebanese uh, border, the land border was delineated under the decision 1701, uh, and again, following the Second Lebanon War, the maritime border uh, was not delineated, and it has to do with a certain angle uh, where the... Uh, 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 the Israel territorial water ends and the Lebanese territorial water begin. So if you take uh, Israel uh, northern border, Israel-Lebanese border, and then take an angle toward uh, uh, Cyprus, uh, the uh, Israeli uh, argument is that it goes slightly toward the north and Lebanon slightly toward the south. That creates a, a triangle of uh, disputed uh, territory, um, which uh, according to the Lebanese now is over 3,000 uh, square uh, uh, kilometers of uh, territorial water. Uh, it used to be much less than that at the beginning of the negotiations. Lebanon needs this uh, dispute resolves because without that, it would not be able to uh, develop uh, its uh, gas fields. Uh, it, uh, this influenced less uh, Israel's gas fields. Uh, the main gas fields are already developed uh, and they're not a part of this. Uh, but there's also uh, additional resources inside the water that needs to be developed, and this is why uh, it's important uh, to delineate the, this, board, this, this maritime border. It's also, of course, will be a, a tremendous achievement uh, for the Americans on the one hand and for Israel and Lebanon that uh, uh, we're not able to uh, create uh, an agreement so far. All right. Well, I, I think that we can hope for the best and, and wish the new mediator, Hochstein, good luck. Uh, Neil Bohms, thank you so much for joining us again. You're welcome. Let's take a look now at the weather forecast. 
Temperatures tonight staying roughly the same. Lows hanging at about 65 degrees Fahrenheit or 18 degrees Celsius. Then tomorrow, fewer clouds and more sun as the average daily high is expected to rise to 84 degrees Fahrenheit or 29 degrees Celsius. And now before we go, let's take a look at what's going viral here in Israel. That's a, uh, yep, that's a camel. Aw, oh, he's cute. <laughs> he was cute. All right, that's it for today's news. Today's exchange rate, rate is 3.22 shekels to the American dollar and 2.55 shekels to the Canadian dollar. And finally, for the latest updates and news from ILTV, please like ILTV on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel as well as to our newsletter at ILTV.tv. I'm Aaron Porras. Be well. Thank you so much for watching.